Hey everyone, welcome to. Oh, sorry, were you ready, Kate? I am now. Okay. <laughs> sorry. There it is, cold open. Got it. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Solar Tech Talk. My name's Aaron Bingham. I'm here with Kate Collardson. We're both product managers over at Baywari Solar Systems, and we're here to geek out about solar energy. Hey, Kate, how you doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing fantastic. Really, really looking forward to the days warming up here. We're, we're starting to see some sunny days here in California, a little bit less rain, and I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> this is one of my, probably my favorite time of year when the days are just getting longer and longer and you can really start to feel it so much more sunlight. I'm, I'm here for it. Absolutely. Yeah, same here. Have you, uh, have you been reading any articles or, or seeing anything in the news that you'd like to give a plug here? I'm going to plug Baywa Ari. Our parent company has released a report called The Decade That Matters. And we all know that climate change is an issue and um, turning quickly, the conversation is turning quickly to a climate crisis. And Baywa Ari has, has issued a report uh, about the, the climate crisis and it aims to take away from the noise of, of the conversation and focus in on on what we can do in this decade that that really matters if we're going to turn this thing around. I recommend that folks uh, check that one out. What about you? I wanted to take a minute to highlight some excellent work done by the InterSolar team. They recently put together a great webinar that was free for everyone to attend and um, I believe is available as a recording now. Uh, the, the webinar was called The Texas Grid Crisis, The Solar Plus Storage Opportunity. It was moderated by Peter Kelly Dittweiler, and he had folks from various organizations that work closely with the Texas Grid, including Amy Hart from Sunrun, who's their director of policy over at Sunrun. And they did a phenomenal job of breaking down exactly what happened with the grid and um, what the role of the renewable energy resources associated with the grid was in the in the um, in the power outage that folks in Texas experienced. So I heard that the the outage was caused by renewable energy. Is yeah, that what they said? I, yeah, that that was what some of the initial reporting said. Um, you know, while some of the renewable energy resources attached to the Texas grid did have to shut down production for various reasons. They, they pointed out that other resources, including natural gas and um, some of the equipment associated with making sure that the power generated by those resources gets out to the grid in a timely way, actually had to shut down as well, in large part because uh, there weren't steps taken to weatherize some of those critical components to the grid. And so some of those components ended up freezing in that extreme weather event and really creating a serious, even deadly situation for Texans. It's, it's a really insightful webinar. It goes into a lot of detail around how the grid reacted to the extreme weather event and what caused the grid outage that folks in Texas experienced. That was really a horrible event. I, my home state, is Texas and where I grew up, the town where I grew up, people had no electricity and had to boil their water. And you know, if they didn't, they didn't have a gas stove, then boiling water really wasn't an option. And it, you know, it was it, it was a dire situation. And I, my heart goes out to to all of the folks that were affected. It was it's pretty amazing that the entire state 
pretty much was was affected by the power outage. And um, I'm glad that things are are coming back together for for Texas there. Yeah, and one of the points that was made during the presentation that I found really interesting was that during the during the power outage, those homes that homes and businesses that did continue to receive power from from the grid, some of them were charged exorbitant rates for the power that they consumed during that time. And uh, one of the panelists during the um, during the presentation actually pointed out that if you account for the value of power during those moments when the rest of the grid was being charged exorbitant rates for power consumption, if you accounted for the value of that power at those rates, then the value of having renewable energy resources and sustainable resources capable of weathering these kinds of storms in place shoots through the roof. Uh, you know, it, it more than quadruples the value of, of that renewable energy resource. So it, it put a really interesting spin on a really, really difficult situation that I hope working together, we can ensure other states don't have to experience. Yeah, really interesting topic. The, the Texas grid is a different than most. That's, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. So today we have a couple of interviews that we're really excited to bring to our audience. Our first interview was with Jason Fisher. He's the vice chair of CIA's Codes and Standards Working Group. And our second interview is with Blair Reynolds over at SMA. Um, we're going to be discussing PVRSS, RSD, and RSE with each of them. We're going to talk a little bit about what the differences are between each of these designations and what some of the differences are with the new UL 3741 standard being available for folks to start designing and testing equipment to. That sounds great. Both of those folks always have a lot of interesting things to say, so I'm excited to, to hop to those interviews. Let's, uh, let's start with the interview with Jason. We are here today with Jason Fisher. Jason is uh, an independent consultant, and he is also the vice chair of the SIA Codes and Standards Working Group. Um, he's here today to talk with us about rapid shutdown. So we're really excited uh, to have you here. Thanks for being here, Jason. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So. First of all, when we're dealing with rapid shutdown, there are a lot of letters that we like to use. We've got RSS and RSD and RSE. And I wonder if you could start us off by walking us through the differences there. Uh, sure. I mean, honestly, it, with rapid shutdown, even the name rapid shutdown, it's all sort of jargon, honestly, which jargon has its, has its usefulness. But when you're in the regulatory space and you're trying to enforce code requirements or other regulatory requirements, jargon kind of sucks because people could have different interpretations of what these things are. Uh, that can lead to confusion when you've got a power play between an, like an inspector and an installer. Jargon is problematic. So I tend to try to move away from that whenever possible and try to talk about defined terms. But that all said, I'm happy to you know tell you what my perspective is on a lot of this stuff. Is that um, yeah, PVRS is like typically what people would just use as an acronym. It's jargon for you know PV rapid shutdown. The phrase rapid shutdown is in the code, but you know as many people point out, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not rapid and it's not shutdown. There were terms such as emergency shutdown and stuff like this proposed originally. Uh, there were concerns about using the term emergency, but uh, just to 
paint that picture that there's a lot of different terms out there. But what, what matters, I think, with regards to enforcement of the requirements is rapid shutdown, which is referred to in the National Electrical Code, Article 690, Section uh, 12. And then the, with that, we come with uh, equipment that performs the rapid shutdown. And that is typically that, or it has been to, to date, equipment that has been listed to UL 1741, which is generally a PV RSS or a PV rapid shutdown system. And that is a, a term and an acronym that's in 1741, not in the National Electrical Code, but it's in 1741. Or PV RSE, which is PV rapid shutdown equipment, which are pieces of equipment or components that are used in a rapid shutdown system. So those are those are the terms there that you'll find with uh, devices such as you know devices where that you might attach to modules etc that perform rapid shutdown um, or maybe equipment that's inside of um, a combiner box or something like that could be PVRSC an inverter might be a part of this in terms of sending a signal and stuff, and that might be part of the PVRSS, the system. Um, so those are all the terms that we've used today, but the new term that we have to start familiarizing ourselves with is PVHCE. <laughs> gotta, gotta watch myself. PV hazard control equipment or PV hazard control systems, uh, PVHCS, or PVHC, which is just the general term of PV hazard control, which is a subset of rapid shutdown. And I'll just stop by saying, honestly, we can't get hung up in all this because what matters for, for uh, installers and inspectors is what's written into 690.12, the rapid shutdown requirements, and they should try as much as possible to just you know focus on that language, because you'll notice that in that language there are a lot. There's a lot of permissible things and stuff, and it doesn't require a lot of these devices or equipment or systems or anything like that. It just requires the PV system to function a certain way. Ho hopefully that makes sense. Probably doesn't, but whatever. Absolutely does to me. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully to our audience as well. Yeah. <laughs> all all um, hopefully in the end though, keeping people safe, right? I mean, that's that's really what the objective of, of the code is. Yeah, that's the way to phrase it. The objective of the National Electrical Code is to keep uh, people safe. The rapid shutdown requirements are very specific in that they are there to target firefighters who are performing emergency operations around PV equipment. I always try to stress to people the fact that these systems are safe without a rapid shutdown system. The, the rapid shutdown system is there, and this is what has been clarified a lot in, this, in the new standard that we'll probably talk a lot more about this UL 3741 PV hazard control. That's where it's clarified that really what we're doing here is, is creating, reducing any electrical hazards that might be present if that system gets damaged in any way. That's the important part because it's not, the National Electrical Code as a whole ensures that PV systems are safe and the equipment listing requirements for all the equipment, which are very vast for our systems and, and all this, that's all there for to keep people safe, including things like disconnects and lockout, you know, disconnects and all this sort of stuff is for electrical workers, rapid shutdown, should be clear in everybody's mind that it's for firefighters performing their operations, emergency operations, usually 
firefighting in the vicinity of PV arrays who might get contact with that PV equipment, which either causes the damage when they make contact with it or the, the, the equipment already has some damage to it. That absolutely makes sense. And I think it's a great lead in for the, the next question. You kind of talked a little bit about the origins of 690.12 and, and the purpose behind it. Tell us a little bit more about where the, the new standard that we're starting to hear more and more about uh, came from. So you all 3741, um, what does that accomplish in your mind? And, and what's kind of the origin story for that particular? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Um, so yeah, so um, one of my roles for uh, C actually is to be the principal representative on code making panel four of the National Electrical Code um, back in the and it was actually back in 2014 cycle was where rapid shutdown uh, was first sort of codified. Um, at the time I wasn't the CEO representative on the committee, but I was working for a, a major manufacturer and we were involved in these discussions. I just want to, to preface this whole thing by saying there was a legitimate concern on the part of the firefighting community, the fire service, which was they needed to understand what is the hazard of these systems when these systems are on roofs or anything like that. And without knowledge and without clarification about what sort of hazards these could pose to them when they're operating in this area, um, some um, fire departments were making decisions to not fight fires as aggressively or to avoid equipment or something like this. So there was a very legitimate impetus for these requirements, uh, in my view, and I think in the view of a lot of folks. The, it was because at the time, there wasn't a lot of research or understanding or all this, that it sort of quickly just became a discussion around, well, what's something that we could put into the code that could be enforced? And that's what started the, um, what people call a ray shutdown or something like this, which is that we're, we're just gonna focus on the wiring that leaves the PV arrays. That was the thrust of the 2014 code. That's right. And it's still basically the same requirements for outside the array, sort of the 2017 and the 2020 uh, codes, this, um, you know, less than 30 volts, it's now 30 seconds instead of the original 10. That was that, and, and that has a legit, very legitimate reasons in that this wiring could be hidden behind walls or something like this. You know, you have no idea. And when you're on a roof, you don't know which, what, you know, conduits contain what wires, et cetera. You know, it wasn't perfect. The 10 foot thing was not written well, you know, so that got really confusing for people and how to apply it and all this sort of stuff, but whatever. When we got into 2017 uh, um, and, and then the subsequent 2020, et cetera, the same requirements basically exist. There was a big push to get back inside the array. And um, quite honestly, it was, it was pretty frustrating for folks like myself to represent the, the solar industry's interest in this because it very quickly became political and lots of commercial interests and all this sort of stuff. And the frustrating part was that, as I mentioned earlier, it's about damage, but the damage wasn't defined, like how much damage, under what conditions and all this, because you can't, it, there's no product safety standard that protects everybody from every single possible scenario. You have to draw a box around it and say, these are the conditions that we're gonna test for. Now that wasn't done, but there was a big push. And then it was like, let's take this off the shelf stuff and just write the requirements around this off the shelf stuff. And that was a push towards managing the hazard control within the array. Within the array, 
and it was, you know, based on a bunch of assumptions, which are fair assumptions that 80 volts is better than 600 volts or whatever. You know? So it's like, but, you know, whatever. But uh, at that time in 2017, during the writing of that requirement is when the concept of having a new standard to define the problem started. Unfortunately, to write a whole UL standard takes some time, <laughs> even though this one was pretty quick, really, in, in hindsight, it took several years to happen, even without like a, a whole bunch of support for it. We could, many of us who were proposing this could only write sort of a guess of what it would, what it would be written for. And that's where you'll see in the 2017 language, um, it says the PV rapid shutdown array or something like this. I, I can't believe I've forgotten it now, but whatever the exact phrase was. Um, and it was sort of trying to sort of say that at some point we'll have some product safety standard that's targeted for rapid shutdown for PV array equipment. And if you can get your equipment listed for that, then that will suffice. And it explicitly didn't have any limits like voltages or anything like this in there because the intention for those of us who believed that this was good for the PV industry was to say, let's define the problem first before we start writing down what the solutions are, right? Kind of simple and- uh, Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but it was complicated. So that's uh, that's where it started from, and then uh, UL, you know, to their credit, took took the uh, took it seriously and formed a, a standards technical panel (STP), and um, we had broad fire service representation on there, which was great because we we had very limited fire service input into these requirements beforehand, which sounds a little weird, but that's the reality. And so we had multiple people from all across the U.S. Um, and even Canada with um, some input from the fire service and debated a lot of things that you're going to hear people say like, oh, they never get on roofs or they always get on roofs or they, you know, do this or whatever. Had all those discussions and then wrote everything down, agreed on it. And it was just published um, this past December. And in a nutshell, what it does is that UL 3741 is it says, okay, for this inside the array, boundary, there's all this PV array equipment. The only thing that's going to be the true pass fail is can a essentially, you know, very dangerous current pass through a firefighter, right? That's, that's the ultimate safety thing, which aligns with lots of electrical safety requirements, right? right. Um, can the person get in the middle of the circuit and can there be a sufficient amount of current that could flow through them that could cause uh, damage, not just lethal damage, but, you know, um, serious damage. And so that's, that's really the, the only hard limit that's stated. Uh, the rest of the standard says you have to address these conditions in your solution and you have to document and you have to prove by testing, et cetera, that what you're claiming is true is that they can't get in the middle of this circuit under these conditions. And we had to define what those conditions like, what are the operations that the firefighter is going to be doing? What's the PPE that they're going to be wearing? They don't wear electrical PPE, but they wear firefighting PPE that has some electrical qualities that you all defined and all this. So, so we had all that together, lots of work by a lot of different people. And so now what we have in that standard is a a process that would allow somebody to come up with their own particular solution, not defined exactly what equipment is required or anything, but provides a process by which the electrical hazards 
of that solution, you know, um, what, what level of hazard these things cause to firefighters working in this area. So it's intentionally very broad without a lot of limits. And therefore, it's really not going to fit everybody. And it's not going to be easy for a lot of people. But for those in the solar industry, of which we all know many, who are capable of many great things and having you know incredible imaginations and ingenuity. Um, for those who want to pursue it, in in a nutshell, it's not. I mean, bottom line, it's not a module level electronics requirement, mm-hmm. and it's really not even an electronics requirement. And the reason why that's so important uh, to folks like me who have been working in the electrical trades, you know, for most of my life, is that I know that the best electrical safety. Uh, systems are those the dumber the better basically the more the dumber proof right yeah exactly (laughs) so hopefully that gives a a picture of the standard um but but yeah you'll you'll uh it is it's not new to some of us because we've been working on it for so long but (laughs) don't feel bad if you're listening to this and it's new to you and you don't know what the hell it is and it's um it's it'll take some time for it to work out there but i i'm convinced that it's ultimately going to provide the path that's going to be best for the industry as a whole because it doesn't restrict technology to just what we have today on the shelf. Sure. And and if folks who are listening or watching our podcast are kind of wondering to themselves, how is it possible that um, I haven't heard of this this way of meeting the NEC uh 2017 rapid shutdown requirements or PV hazard control uh, requirements, you know, since the code has been out for more than three years now, it's been, it's now actively the the code of reference in most states at this point, I think, I think there might be a couple of states that are not on um, NEC 2017 yet. Uh, And some, some states are even moving on to NEC 2020, but it, it sounds like what happened was the, the initial code described a few ways of satisfying the safety requirements um, and some of those kind of in broad terms and the, the, um, the tests that would be required to prove that a system meets, say the PV hazard control um, safety standard weren't, weren't actually available. They, they, they had to be uh, designed, developed, worked through, agreed upon by various institutions that would be responsible for conducting those tests. Is that, do you, do you think that that's kind of how folks may have missed this, even though the NEC 2017 code has been around for so long? Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. It's, um, you know, for, for the longest time, this industry was not reactionary, you know, and, and was always pushing the envelope. I mean, I go back to the 1981 era building integrated PV system that I worked on that had built-in energy storage and interactive inverter and you know everything that everybody has today it's like the big thing before um, it's time <laughs> it was all done in the 80s. and so you know it, it's but what's happened as prices come down there's more competition and all that is that yeah in this in this realm people just really just focused on for good reason how do i keep selling and installing pv systems how do i keep selling and installing my product the simplest thing is just to say you know if i've got to meet this inside the array requirement at 80 volts i'm going to start making or selling or promoting or designing in module level electronic devices just because that's kind of what the original language was written for honestly um, so yeah, that's why you didn't, you didn't hear much about this or see it is because there wasn't really a push by anybody to shift gears and start, uh, making stuff like this, that, 
that really changed a lot as people started to design systems such as some uh, building integrated PV systems that didn't work out very well with module level electronics devices that were off the shelf. And so those those companies started to get a lot more active on pursuing a, another way. And then there's also some really, you know, some really good um, uh, work done, you know, that was looking at, well, what about a commercial system? And does this, does that really require the same, you know, is it really the same hazard and the same conditions? And, and you know, is it fair to be saying that you have to buy all these individual maximum PowerPoint trackers for all this stuff that's all just sitting there in the sun, all facing the same direction? You know, so there's a lot of questions like that. So that's the momentum that really built up in order to um, put in the work, which is all volunteer work. To, to write these standards, put in the work to uh, to write and develop the standard. What do you think, or what what kind of implications do you see on equipment as a result of of, of the new standard? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll tell you that. So there's no hard limits in it, except for you know preventing shock to the firefighter, which is an important one. I think there's going to be a broad group, but it's going to be narrowly focused to a few. Um, provider. So I suspect that it's going to um, make a lot more practical and a lot more straightforward um, and understandable for, you know, full systems such as some building integrated PV systems, you know, where you're not just taking a rack here and a module here and a device here and all that, just putting it all together. You actually have, you know, a complete system and you're, it's, it's sort of controlled. What are the parts and pieces? It's the standards very, very well suited for that type of a system. But that doesn't mean that that's going to be the only type of system. You're going to see there's there's actually a, a pretty simple, straightforward approach in the standard. The standard is sort of written around a risk assessment, essentially, you know, which can be quite complicated if, um, you know, people have done like FMEAs and all this sort of stuff, you know. So there are a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of back and forth, et cetera. But if you're willing just to assume sort of, quote, worst case for all these different what if scenarios, there's actually a pretty straightforward path to have equipment um, that's evaluated for this, maybe a couple of different components together, that is essentially just going to mean that, you know, the voltage is, the allowable voltage is higher, just because the assumptions that went into an 80 volt number, you know, turned out to be a little different than the actual um, data um, and, uh, and, and process that was documented in 3741 turned out to be. So I think at a minimum, I could easily see, particularly for like commercial rooftops or something like this, instantly having the requirement for how many electronic doodads you have to put up there, right? And I, I do think that there, because there's still, voltage still plays a role in it, but I think that there's some pretty exciting stuff where it might also encourage you know, maybe racking manufacturers to, or and even module manufacturers to consider like wire management more and protecting these wires because there's there's different hazards for for good reason. There's different hazards levels applied to just a single conductor sitting out there with a little bit of insulation on it versus something that's you know enclosed, be, you know, within a wireway that where you can't conduct, you know, where you can't contact the conductor. And again, this. This aligns with our systems in our homes or buildings, right? I mean, you know, if you, if we put everything in enclosures or conduits or whatever, and then we say it's safe, you know, they're safe to touch. Well, you know, we have the same sort of thing baked into here. We don't, we don't, we take a different approach to it because it's firefighting and it's a different scenario. But if you can prevent the contact between the person 
and the live part or live conductor, then you get credit for that. And so I do think that perhaps with modules, perhaps with um, racking, there might be some innovative designs, which I think is a win-win because it should make systems more robust and resilient and resistant to things like rodent damage or anything else like that. You also might see things like less sort of exposed grounded metal, um, more sort of double insulated for lack of a better term um, equipment because the, the standard considers bare exposed metal as potentially being hazardous because the standard assumes that if I've got single conductors and bare exposed metal, then I've got a high likelihood for an existing ground fault, you know, by the time the firefighter gets anywhere near this thing. Um, So it basically assumes that. But if you don't have any metal in the system, or if the metal is protected so that you can't make contact with it, then you don't have to assume that, you know, that failure mode right off the bat, Um, which again, in my view is a win-win because, hey, double insulation is a good thing. And, and, um, you know, if there's ways to improve the overall safety and resiliency and robustness of these systems um, under normal use, then let's take advantage of that. Because let's just be honest, this is important. These are important safety systems, rapid shutdown systems, but besides the compliance testing, the installation testing, you know, the function testing and all that, you know, how many are actually going to be used for these emergency conditions? <laughs> we hope very, very few. It's always been very, very few, very, very small number of PV systems out there ever involve any um, firefighters anywhere near them. And, you know, honestly, that everybody's going to keep on getting better. So for me, that's, that's one of the advantages of the 3741 perspective is it's actually looking at total system safety, not just saying, let's just figure out a way to, for minimum compliance, just to get this thing up on the roof, you know, and those changes should improve the, you know, the overall total system safety of these systems throughout their lifetime, you know, not just during a firefighting event. Yeah, kind of goes right back to what you started at the top of the interview with in terms of highlighting that these systems are safe um, and we're really just trying to develop codes and standards that would ensure that folks who are dealing with these systems in unusual circumstances are remain safe as well. Yes. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of how this gets implemented on the ground. When when an installation firm is considering a solution that says that it's compliant or a part of a UL 3741 PV hazard control system, uh, what does that installer or system designer, because it really needs to be something that's addressed at the system design level and stage. What do those folks on the installation team though need to know as they're designing their um, UL3741 compliant uh, arrays uh, about how these components need to be certified together or not? um, What does it take to actually have a system that is 3741 compliant in its entirety? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. And thanks for, thanks for really sharpening that point there because it's really critical to understand is that there's nothing that says that a 3741 system can't be made up of different components from different manufacturers, but much like, you know, perhaps people have started to experience with another system standard like UL 9540 with regards to energy storage, there's 
important relationships where where through any listing, these critical components must be identified. They must be narrowly focused to a specific model type, whatever, manufacturer, et cetera. It doesn't mean every nut and bolt in the array, as I've heard some people say that don't like 3741. It's not every nut and bolt, but if the nut and bolt is critical for the safety of the function, then sure, there's a nut you gotta and bolt. got to include it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if the nut and bolt doesn't have anything to do with it, then we don't have to conclude it. So, but what you do is you'd say, okay, you know, in the 30s, like, it, here's what I'd say is, um, number one, you can't build a system yourself and call it 3741. It has to be listed. If you're saying, well, is this truly a UL 3741 system and am I constructing it right? you have to go to the installation instructions that are part of the components that make up the UL 3741 system because part of the standard says all of this has to be identified. There has to be a specific list of the, of the required components. There has to be clear statements on if there's any restrictions on how it can be installed or anything like this. That all is part of the evaluation. And so that's all going to be in the instructions. And there's going to be questions around a lot of this, you know, how do I know this and that and the other thing. And um, I think field inspectors are going to be justifiably skeptical about, you know, claims, you know, they're going to want everything documented. They're going to you know, ultimately that's what it's going to be is a list of key components, could be just a couple of components, could be a whole suite of components, right? Depending on how it's list, how it's, how it's been evaluated, it's all going to be documented. And then you're going to have clear restrictions on, you know, how it can be installed. So for now, I say the number one thing, if people are interested in this is to start asking manufacturers and suppliers and stuff, are they, you know, do they have a 3741 system? Are they pursuing it? Um, you know, uh, express your interest in it, you know, support for the idea. If you, if you want to reduce the amount of electronics that you're required to install, you know, there's plenty of good stuff out there. I'm not here to bad math, you know, module level electronics, but if you're, if you're doing it just for rapid shutdown, you know, then you know, and, and you, you have other reasons that you, you know, wouldn't want to do it, then, you know, these are the questions that you'd ask around this, but wait until somebody presents you with their 3741 system to even believe that you might have one. The burden is on, on the entity that has listed this system, you know, to, to meet those requirements and prove that this is a UL3741 system and to explain to you as a designer or you as an installer, what are the requirements for installation in order to um, be in compliance with that listing. So that's why I say most likely, most people are gonna first experience this with some very specialty PV system, you know, where it's not just any old universal frame module and any old you know, for, you know type of rack or anything like that. That's gonna be the most, some, you know, may find it referenced for some other designs, but you know, I think that might be further down the line is what I'm thinking. Jason, thank you so much for this time. It's been extremely informative and I know your work with Sia is, essentially thankless. So I'll go ahead and thank you for that as well. Um, we, we certainly all as an industry benefit from, from your intelligence and ability to lead on these fronts. So. Oh, well, thanks guys. No, appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I hope that, uh, yeah, that it's, it always is good when you feel like you're doing some good work. I don't think I'm always doing great work, but, um, I look forward to hopefully, you know, hearing, about all the great new products and stuff that are gonna come out um, around this and the new innovative designs and all that. So I appreciate you all, um, you know, really having, 
engaging in this discussion and um, and trying to spread the word. Yeah, and tune us into us over at Solar Tech Talk because hopefully we'll be interviewing the manufacturers that are uh, launching those solutions. That's right. So Start asking them about, about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I look forward to doing that for sure. That was a great interview. It's always great to talk with Jason. Every time I talk to him, I feel like I learned so much. It was interesting to hear him talk about the phrase PV hazard control as opposed to rapid shutdown. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the fact is that, that that's what it's all about. It's, it's controlling danger um, in, in our systems. And I thought that was an interesting phrase. Same here. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really excited to hear what Blair Reynolds has to say on this topic. So let's go ahead and check in with him. Sounds good. We are here today with Blair Reynolds from SMA to talk about UL3741. Uh, but before we dive into nerd chat, Blair, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do at SMA. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, happy to be here joining you on the podcast. Um, yeah, my name is Blair Reynolds, and I'm a product manager for SMA America. In my current role, I'm actually responsible for large-scale energy storage solutions and our new grid-forming technologies. But this conversation is going to be definitely on a whole different topic as it relates mostly to rooftop PV. So let's let's just dive in. When it comes to uh, UL standards and uh, rapid shutdown requirements, can you tell tell us a little bit about what the standards are and how one meets those? Yeah, sure. And and kind of to set this up, I just want to um, kind of queue up a couple of slides here that might help visually explain um, what what's going on with the with the code. And and for our listeners, we will link to these slides in our show notes. So um, just a visual kind of explanation about what rapid shutdown compliance is all about and the options that we have for, for meeting the code. Um, so first of all, in the NEC 2017 and 2020 code cycles, there's basically two broad categories in terms of rapid shutdown. And we say rapid shutdown, but what we really mean is controlling conductors. And these two broad requirements, first of all, there's 690.12B1, which mandates controlling the conductors outside of the array boundary. And the array boundary is loosely defined as being a, a foot away from the PV equipment, not just the modules, but the equipment. So that is mandatory. There's no um, kind of wiggle room getting around it. Uh, you have to have it uh, less than or equal to 30 volts within 30 seconds upon initiating a rapid shutdown event. So that is 690.12B1. 690.12b2 is focused on controlling the conductors inside the array boundary. So within that one foot perimeter, if you will. And there's actually three options that are, that are in the code. Most people only know of one, the, uh, the second of those three options, which involves module level power electronics like microinverters or power optimizers, but there's actually three. And the first of those three options is the one that we'll be talking about today, a UL3741 PV hazard control array. And I'll talk a little, quite a bit more about what that actually means. And just for you know full context, the third of those three options was basically a provision that was really written in for BIP, BIPV solutions in mind, where you have no exposed metal or exposed cables. There's kind of a, an exemption where you don't need uh, to, to shut down within less than 80 volts within 30 seconds, which is what's stipulated by the second option, the MLPE option. So let me just summarize by saying 
in order to fully meet code compliance for, for rapid shutdown, you have to control your conductors outside of the array boundary, and you have to control your conductors with one of three options inside the array boundary. Now, most commonly people uh, have gravitated toward the second of those three options, the MLPE solution, because conveniently, if you shut down an individual PV module, you've also essentially shut down the conductors coming off the PV array, right? If you turn off every single module, you've essentially controlled the conductors leaving the array boundary as well. So that's why that's been a pretty convenient solution. There's also been product available in the market. And until very recently, there has not been a definition for how one could meet that first option, the UL3741 PV hazard control array. But as of the publishing of the UL standard, just at the very tail end of 2020, um, there finally now is a recognized standard uh, for a definition, if you will, for how to set up and test the equipment um, so that it's safe for first responders to interact with. And that's what 3741 is all about. So are you saying that it will be possible or it, it is now possible to, to meet 690.12 without MLPEs? That's right. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. The, the purpose of an MLPE in terms of code, as far as code is concerned, it only has one job, and that would be to shut down less than 80 volts within 30 seconds. There's certainly other benefits of MLPE that come like, for example, with module level monitoring, or um, there's, there's benefits related to increased power harvest in certain scenarios. But the, the, as far as the code is concerned, the, the, the purpose of MLPE is to shut down individual modules or, or groups of modules uh, less than 80 volts within 30 seconds. However, if you comply with one of the two other options that are available under 690.12b2, um, you do not need to comply with the less than 80 volts within 30 seconds. Essentially, um, the way I like to think about it is it, it gives you an opportunity to go back, let's say in time to the NEC 2014 code cycle where we were shutting down at the string level. And essentially that's, that's what 3741 enables us to do is to first and foremost, test the equipment so we we're sure that it's safe for firefighter or first responder interaction. And if it is, then we essentially have an exemption for that shutting down voltage to less than 80 volts. Um, and therefore we're only, only bound by 690.12b1, which is controlling conductors outside of the array boundary uh, where you can have, let's say, a single point switch less than 30 volts within 30 seconds. And I have a sort of a visual representation of what that might look like, uh, these two types of, of arrays. Uh, I've, I've eliminated the BIPV option from this example um, because it's, it's not a very common uh, scenario. But uh, basically, the, the first option that we're looking at here on the right is a scenario where you have a rooftop PV array with something resembling an MLPE attached to every module. And I call that a standard PV array. Um, however, if you look on the bottom right-hand corner of this slide, it's essentially, it's a, it's a PV array with only one rapid shutdown device for the entire string. Uh, and that rapid shutdown device is, is meeting the code compliance for controlling conductors outside of the array boundary. And what's meeting code compliance for uh, controlling conductors inside the array boundary is a holistic uh, evaluation by a nationally recognized test laboratory to UL standard 3741. So ensuring first and foremost that the equipment is safe for first responder interaction inside the array boundary, 
And if that is the case, then the code allows us to essentially switch or control the conductors that are leaving or exiting that one foot perimeter around the, the PV array boundary. That's really interesting. And I think it obviously creates some exciting opportunities to move away from MLPE based solutions that um, you know we've become very familiar with in the last 10 to 15 years or so since I think Enphase was probably one of the first to, to really introduce MLPE options in a big way. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how uh, a product line goes through the, um, the testing that's required to achieve 17, excuse me, 3741 listing. Yeah. So um, what 3741 is, is it's an evaluation of the entire array holistically, right? So your modules, your mounting system, and some sort of a device which provides the controlling of the conductors outside that array boundary. Um, so the core components essentially are made up the modules, the mounting system, and some form of a, of a switch. Um, now, the particular emphasis is placed on the wire management strategy, uh, because ultimately that is the main failure point, right, for a, a PV array. I mean, the number one cause of failure within the PV array boundary uh, is attributed to the, the DC connectors. It's a very common issue that we see because in the US market anyways, we've been sort of granted an exception uh, for probably far too long that allowed us to mate connectors with different makes and models. You know, They call it a MC4 compatible or MC4 type, but not necessarily a true Staubly multi-contact uh, connector. Now, in other markets like Europe, for example, they, they got rid of this loophole years and years ago right, that they absolutely enforce that you can only connect uh, connectors which are listed or, you know, intended to be paired together, same make and model. Um, and in doing so, it takes a huge amount of, uh, let's say, uh, potential issues out of, the, out of the array because the inherent problem you run into when you're mating connectors of different makes, different manufacturers, is that there's difference, differences in geometry. Um, and differences in the tolerances. tolerances. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And so because these metal pins are fashioned in, in such a way where, you know, there's a really tight tolerance needed for them to, to physically fit. It's not just about making that pleasant snapping noise. They need to really, they need to fit well and also maintain that fitness during thermal expansion and contraction cycles. Right. So it really does create this, this opportunity for arcs to occur as a small gap between those two metallic parts inside of, you know, the pins inside the connector will, you know, expand or contract with, you know, uh, over the course of a normal, normal day where you could get a, an arc occurring. And the problem with arcs in, in, in a DC system is that they're persistent, right? And so they tend to, to not self-extinguish like an AC arc. Uh, and that, that therein lies kind of the crux of the problem. So uh, connectors of, you know, without a really tight control of how you pair your connectors in the field, we need other safety mechanisms uh, to ensure the array is safe. Now, so, since we haven't had, let's say, uh, up until the 2020 code cycle, we haven't had a mandate in the NEC that says you can only pair listed connections. We've had to come up with other ways of doing that. So we've come up with, uh, first of all, the AFCI, the uh, requiring inverters to detect and react to those arcs when they're occurring somewhere within the DC circuit. That's a, a feature that's really been, I would say, unique to the US market because you know, we've, we've, we've been having 
problems with connectors. And then we have rapid shutdown so that in the event that there's, you know, a first responder needs to show up, uh, needs to get on the roof, perform their, their firefighter safety activities, that uh, we can give them some assurance that that uh, array is, is going to be safe for them to, to interact with. Uh, at least that's the kind of the premise in which I think rapid shutdown kind of started with. It's it's evolved a little bit into something else, I, I feel, um, but at least that was the kind of the initial premise, kind of an extra level of safety assurance. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you mentioned that there there is this concern about mating module connectors together that are of different makes, something that we've been saying here at Baywa for a long time. And, and we actually published an article to this effect a couple of years ago now called Round Pay, Ground Hole, where we talk about it um, at length, is the fact that MC4 compatible, this designation that some module connector manufacturers have been using, isn't a real thing, right? Like anybody can say that they're MC4 compatible. And usually what that means is that the two connectors in question are physically capable of mating with each other. It, it speaks nothing to the fact that they're actually certified to maintain that connection over the lifetime of the connection, right? So um, it's, it's important for listeners and anyone installing a PV array to understand that when you're making a connection between two PV module connectors, you need to ensure that though that the connector on either end of, of that is certified to work with the connector that you're mating it to. Um, if the two are not certified together, it creates all kinds of opportunities for liability in the case of failure. Um, it creates many opportunities for failure in and of itself. Um, so really important for, for everyone listening to understand that um, MC4 compatible as a designation is, is virtually meaningless. And um, it's, it's essential to, for, for the safety of these installations, for your customer safety and for the health of your business that you ensure that every time you're connecting two PV module connectors or uh, two PV connectors in general, be they between modules or MLPE, that um, they are of the same make and or, well, I should just say and, um, are certified to work together. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I, we've only got a couple of minutes left and there's one more topic that I want to touch on. So Blair, what's the deal with the SunSpec Alliance? Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, sure. So the reason the SunSpec Alliance exists is they're all about creating open source interoperable standards. Um, so think of them like as like a, the USB, right? Before there was a USB, what did we have? We had a bunch of you know different types of serial types of plugs and connectors, but there was not a real standard that we could all build towards to ensure that different products could plug into each other and work, right? And so the SunSpec Alliance really is is kind of trying to solve a similar type of problem, but but in terms of yeah communication protocols. Um, and so, for example, they created standards for Modbus, so how, uh, how, how two devices can talk to each other over a Modbus protocol, and they've created a standard for rapid shutdown. And basically, it's, it's an open source communication protocol such that any certified device uh, should be able out of the box to work with another device, just as you would expect from your USB. And so I think why that's really important is it's just creating ultimately a, a lower cost solution, right? Uh, when you get a lot of the proprietary stuff out of your PV system, um, it really allows uh, manufacturers to standardize on a, on a 
uh, a protocol and a way of doing something that ultimately leads to more consumer choice and lower cost. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest problem that we could face right now as an industry, well, I don't want to say the biggest, but a major problem that we could face right now as an industry is if one of these top MLPE manufacturers went away, because how would you even be allowed to de design a device that doesn't violate their IP that is that, that would operate with their system, right? When you have such a closed loop proprietary pro communication interface between a, a microinverter and, and a, a gateway or a, an optimizer and an inverter, there's really no opportunity um, to come in and retrofit that with a third party solution. You basically have to tear the PV array up and start over from scratch. Uh, so the reason SunSpec is so important in my opinion is it gives consumers uh, choice and it gives them a, a, a interoperability, interoperable standard that they can apply towards their, their PV system so that there's just more compatible products and, and devices available in the market. Not to mention that it's just a simpler way to, you know, address the overall rapid shutdown communications and uses far less energy, is more efficient, so on. I couldn't agree more. And what um, the, the way that I also think of SunSpec on my end is that it, it creates an opportunity for manufacturers to focus on those things that are their core competencies, right? To be a good inverter manufacturer, you shouldn't necessarily have to be good at manufacturing module level power electronics. You shouldn't necessarily have to be good at um, developing the communication protocols that need to exist between those devices to ensure that they're responding in a rapid shutdown scenario in the way that they're um, required to. Um, you know, it, it gives the market a little bit more room to play in terms of coming up with creative solutions that will drive our industry forward while ensuring safety for everyone who's um, who's dealing with one of these systems day to day or in an emergency. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're a new entrant into this space, like why, why would you not adopt the open source standard, right? It, it actually gives you quite a bit more credibility um, in terms of getting access to, you know, already established manufacturers who've gone through the certification process. The last thing we need is another microinverter with its own proprietary types of communication systems, right? Because how are we going to service those products if that company was to disappear overnight? Yeah, it's a good question. Blair, can you say a little bit more about how racking equipment manufacturers will need to work with inverter manufacturers in order to obtain a, a UL3741 certification uh, that's system-wide and comprehensive? And are those partnerships that, that you've been involved with negotiating now? And if so, how's that going? What's your experience been? Yeah, let me just say that it the inverter really has a almost no role whatsoever when it comes to the PV hazard control array evaluation. I mean, we, most cases, the inverter is not necessarily on the roof, or even in the event that it is, it's not really part of that inside the array boundary area, right? What's important for the 3741 evaluation is that you identify, first of all, what kind of strategy do you want to go for in terms of controlling your conductors outside of the array boundary? Is it going to be a single switch strategy? Or are you still going to have some kinds of components within the array? And 3741 creates this, I'd say, basically a new category of a product called a midstream circuit interrupter uh, that allows you to isolate segments of PV modules connected in series. And so you're, you're essentially cutting the voltage down 
from thousand volts, maybe on a commercial system to something, maybe let's say that's more manageable or, or perceived to be safer for first responder interaction. Interesting. And the already there's been a voltage. Yeah, right. But already a, a major third party owned uh, national PV installer has, has found that they've been really able to leverage this capability in creating a hazard PV hazard control array such that they no longer use MLPE. They use mid-string circuit interrupters now in all of their standard systems. And this strategy that they started rolling out last year has already enabled them to provide flat pricing, $2 a watt before ITC nationally on a residential PV system. Everyone else who's installing MLPE is somewhere in the three plus range, right? By and large. So yeah, I, I thought it was a really, um, yeah, a, a, a really interesting practical scenario where the adoption of this 690.12 B21, having a, 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 an array that was evaluated and listed for photovoltaic rapid shutdown holistically as an array creates a tremendous amount of cost-saving opportunity um, which ultimately, isn't that what we're all in this game for, is making the lowest cost kilowatt hour possible from, uh, from a renewable source, ideally? That's and in exactly a safe where way. our industry's gone. <laughs> all right, Blair, this has been fascinating. Thank you for being here and uh, taking us through all of, all of this, the UL standards and um, the NEC. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I just, you know, let it be known that there are more options either coming or already in the works uh, for code compliance when it comes to rapid shutdown. And so that's really what 3741 is all about. It's creating, ensuring safety and giving installers more ways that they can meet code. Um, and first responders, firefighters, they have the assurance that they need that they can interact with this equipment safely and they don't need to be afraid of it. That is great news for a lot of us. <laughs> Now it's time for our ending segment, Tales from the Roof. A reminder to our audience, if anyone has any stories that they would like to share, please check out the show notes. In our show notes, we have instructions for how to share stories with us. Um, we are accepting stories and, and we will definitely share some on the show. Um, so this next story is from... Uh, Kelly Patachowski with uh, Prometheus Solar in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. Hi, Kate and Erin. Kelly here, joining you from my home office in Flagstaff, Arizona. So this involves um, a ground fault. Let's see, this one was probably closer to 2010. There, this was like a, maybe a 30 kilowatt installation on a, on a big steel structure as a parking structure. It was a commercial entity. This was for like a, a Grand Canyon river running company. So what had happened was I, I went to go investigate during the day and I saw one of these, let's not name the brand of inverter, had a ground fault error on it. So in these you know old days of string inverters, what you had there was a little one amp fuse that you could pull out and replace. And that was just, you know, to, to indicate a ground fault had happened. And for those of you who don't know what a ground fault is, that is when a, a wire that is carrying current, like positive and negative in the DC side, comes into contact with grounded parts like the, uh, the conduit or um, the metal enclosure of a box or container that, uh, that the wires are running through. So that's exactly what happened here. Um, there was a nick in the wire from, from pulling it. I believe it was, it was caused by too many wires and too tight of a turning radius in the conduit. 
So it got a little scrape of the housing, but I hadn't found it at this point. The first thing I checked was the inverter. You know, maybe there's something going on with the inverter. So I pull out that one amp fuse, I get another one amp fuse and I put it back in its place. So I'll, again, the conditions, the sun is still shining. There's still power you know, running through the DC wires. Um, I had turned everything off, but somehow um, power was leaking. Electricity was leaking in through the disconnect switch into the inverter. How do I know this? Because when I put the second fuse back in, it immediately just burnt out. So curiosity got the better of me and I was like, Hmm. what happens if I put in a bigger fuse? So I think I had maybe a 10 amp or something also with me. And so I put that right in the slot there where that one amp was supposed to go and immediately it burnt out, made that same little noise, even made a little spark. And then I don't know what came over me, but I was like, let's try a bigger fuse. So I grabbed a, probably a 20 amp fuse. Those are pretty common at the time and I slipped it right in there and lo and behold, arc, like fire. I've got a fire going on inside of this inverter. Luckily it was installed. It's kind of like a big warehouse, this, this place. And uh, I just ran inside and I'm like, hey, um, fire extinguisher, I've got a fire going on. And so they were, they were really quick. They knew their facility really well. They grabbed their fire extinguisher. We went over there, we just blew the thing out. Everybody and everything was okay. That was just probably one of the scariest moments um, in my installation career. You know, this is how we learn, right? Curiosity got the best of me, but uh, now I know better. So thanks again, guys. For, uh, for letting me join in and share my share my stories. Bye-bye. That was great. Try, try, try again. Right? <laughs> I, I think a good lesson from that is is when you're replacing a fuse, use the same amperage of the replacement fuse. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever uh, the amperage rating is of that fuse, <laughs> it's going to allow at least that much amperage into the first half of the fuse before it blows out the second side, right? So, or the connector between the two, I should say. So yeah, that's <laughs> not surprising and a good lesson to learn in, in a relatively harmless way. Yes, yes. Well, thanks for that story, Kelly. We really appreciate it. And again, if any other, anyone else has uh, stories, check out our show notes and, and uh, for, for instructions on how to submit your stories. Thanks for listening to our show, enjoying our show, and we'll, uh, we'll be back soon with another episode. Hopefully with more Tales from the Roof. <laughs> <laughs>